Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. Hey, guys. It's Russell. Today on the show, we have Mark Ritchie. Mark is the former president of the American Alpine Club, and in 2011, he, along with Freddie Wilkinson and Steve Swenson, who at that time was the current president of the American Alpine Club, made the first ascent of Saucer Congre II, the second highest unclimbed mountain in the world at 24,665 feet. Mark began climbing and exploring at age 15 in the Quincy Quarries of Massachusetts. An expert at all forms of climbing, he has made over 40 expeditions to the greater mountain ranges throughout the world with a focus toward technical alpine style ascents, exploratory climbing, and adventurous travel. Mark also owns and operates Mark Ritchie Woodworking and Design, which builds and installs high-end architectural millwork. Mark, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mark, we're super excited to have you on the show today. For the listeners, Mark and I have a lot of history together. He was probably there when I was born. Uh, him and my dad are actually very good friends. Uh, they were part of a 1991 New England Everest expedition, successful New England Everest expedition. He's basically been another dad to me, an uh, inspiration in my life. Thank you so much for taking the time, Mark. We know you're busy with your woodworking shop. I know you're in there making uh, amazing woodworking there too. <laughs> so thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about when you were getting started, uh, when you were younger and you were trying to figure everything out? You wanted to do some climbing and then you also had this sincere fascination for woodworking. Well, climbing came first, really. I started climbing when I was about 15. I started climbing the way most people did in those days. Went into the hills, you know, did some hiking with my sister who was kind of an outdoors person. She was quite a bit older than me. And I watched some rock climbers one day, and something about it just really excited me, and I wanted to try it. Took a lesson in Quincy Quarries uh, by a, a local uh, experienced rock climber. Actually, wasn't much older than me. His dad came along to supervise. That very first day, over 40 years ago, within a few hours of climbing, I knew that this was something I was going to do my whole life. Hmm. Uh, that's it. Just it was. Uh, you know, I was only 15 or so, but it was an epiphany for me. And I, I just I connected with it so much. It was everything about it just matched who I was, my personality, the, just the, the whole physical challenge, but also the whole mental problem-solving aspect of climbing just uh, really resonated with me. Anyway, I started then, and uh, I've never stopped climbing. So, uh, uh, But, of course, uh, like all of us, I had to earn a living along the way. Uh, I had options, uh, worked as a guide, uh, climbing guide, an instructor. Uh, I used to bring people down to Peru and guide people there on, on mountains and you know, teach rock climbing as well. But I was always fascinated with construction and manufacturing and buildings and architecture and studied architecture for a number of years at the Boston Architectural Center. 
did a long apprenticeship to a harpsichord builder when um, I was young in my uh, late teens, early 20s, and that really set me off on a career of woodworking. I also, uh, like climbing, I knew once I, once I had a really good experience in a, in a woodworking, a fine woodworking shop like the harpsichord shop, that it was something that I wasn't just going to be a way to make money, but it was something I was really passionate about. So that's how I got started in both and um, still doing both. So at this point in your life, do you see the woodworking and the climbing as separate entities or is there a lot of overlap between the two? I mean, you talked about what you loved about climbing was the problem solving and I'm sure there's problem solving in the woodworking as well. Are they separate or together? Well, I couldn't go climbing if it weren't for my Mm -hmm. woodworking business, that's for sure. And I don't think I could be happy, you know, climbing all the time or, you know, I I need a different, sort of totally different type of activity, I think, for my personality. But they do have many, at least the way I see it, being a, a business owner, an entrepreneur, has a lot of skills that I picked up through climbing and being uh, an adventurer that uh, has helped me be successful. I mean, one of them, one of the most obvious ones, I think, is uh, ability to manage risk. You really can't be successful at business if you're not willing to take some risks, calculated risks, but nonetheless risks. So. I have a pretty healthy appetite for that, and that's helped me uh, be a successful businessman. The other interesting connection, I think, between my business and climbing is that I started my business as a one-man operation in the basement of my Malden apartment, building custom furniture and cabinetry. And uh, we've grown it to a company uh, of over 100 people, and you know, we do over $25 million in, in volume a year. And one of the people often ask, well, how did you make that leap? And one of the things that helped me grow along the way was the fact that in order to continue climbing, which I wasn't going to let go, I needed to empower people within my company and trust in other people to help build our business internally. And I often see in small businesses, entrepreneurs are not willing to do that. They have a real hard time letting go of any of the you know important responsibilities, but in order to leave for the Himalaya for three months every year, I had to do that. So the climbing, in an interesting way, I think helped us grow our business. And um, for uh, over 20 years, I left almost every single year on a two to three, at least one expedition to some far off place. Oh. Business continued to grow. So that's one of the more interesting connections I think between my my vocation and my avocation. Yeah, you mentioned being an entrepreneur, you had to be able to take on risk. And I actually, I stumbled upon this last week. I didn't really know how I came to it, but I saw what the definition or where the word entrepreneurship came from. Ben, do you know what it is? I don't. And it's actually someone who bears risk. Ah, That's where it was where it came from, which I thought was really interesting. It didn't really have anything to do with business. It was all about taking that risk. And it seems like you've come up with this formula that's been very successful for you, Mark, to balance your climbing and you've been very successful in the business world as well. I've known you my whole life and I've always thought about how did Mark get to where he is? 
How did this all come together? And it, I think it always comes back to mentors for me. That's the way that I've thought about it. You had your own woodworking mentor, and then all the stories that my dad's told me about your climbing adventures. He was really a mentor for you. And then more recently, when you had the first ascent of Saucer Congre 2, you had Freddie Wilkinson with you. And Freddie talked about how important it was to have you and Steve Swenson there. So can you talk about the role that mentors have played in your life and, and how our listeners could actually go about finding the right mentors for their life? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I've been lucky to have some amazing mentors. Uh, your dad, definitely uh, one of them, uh, particularly when I was very young and just trying to figure out how to you know, do so many things, not just in climbing, but in work and in just everyday living. And he uh, was really great inspiration to me, and uh, I'll never forget that. But I had a lot of great mentors, uh, and I think part of finding good mentors is making yourself available to people who find an interest in, to, in you. And to do that, you have to be someone who is, you know, eager to learn, who's not afraid to admit their mistakes, who's got a lot of energy, respectful, and uh, those people who may be, you know, more experienced and are older than them. And, you know, I think that's a really important part of a, of a good relationship between a, a mentor and a mentoree is uh, the respect, the mutual respect. And I was lucky to have many mentors in my life, and I still have mentors uh, in business, in uh, in climbing. You know, I can just to name a few. I mean, your dad, Rick Wilcox, of course, uh, was an early mentor of mine. Henry Kendall, uh, who passed away. Ed Carter also passed away. And Brad Washburn, three iconic, uh, not only climbers, but renowned scientists, photographers, and uh, educators, uh, uh, the three of them. Uh, were good friends of mine and they all took interest in me and uh, supported what I did and were very helpful in different ways. Uh, but also younger uh, people close to my age, people like John Bouchard who was just a little older than me but more experienced and uh, uh, we formed a very strong climbing partnership for many years and he um, in the early years was a, maybe my most important climbing mentor and taught me the, the most about being effective as a climber and being safe as a climber. Uh, you know, um, I look to my best friends as mentors as well. I mean, I think it's not always just people who have a lot of uh, specific knowledge and experience, but those people that can help guide you through life, like my wife, my best friend, is my most important mentor. And uh, I yeah, continue to look to her for uh, advice and help to do the right thing in life. And my dad, uh, I guess, maybe I can't have a conversation without talking about him and mentorship. He was neither a climber nor a woodworker, but was always someone I could call when I needed advice about the tough questions in life. And he was always there for me. So uh, he just passed away at 94 this, uh, about a month ago. So uh, I think finding mentors is about making yourself open to those types of relationships. And it takes work. If you want someone to take interest in you, and give you their knowledge and, and help and support, you've got to be willing to give back. Yeah, so through this mentorship and being open to all these opportunities, you've had an extraordinarily successful climbing career. Like Russell mentioned, the 91 Summit of Mount Everest with Rick Wilcox being 
with the first group east of the Mississippi to summit Everest. And then more recently, in 2011, you summited Saucer Congre to the first, well, at that time, it was <laughs> the uh, second highest unclimbed peak, not, not anymore. And we want to talk about uh, that climb specifically on this episode. So first of all, when I hear unclimbed, do you even know what you're getting into going into this thing? You had one failed attempt in 2009, I read. How far did you get on the failed attempt? We got about halfway up a big face. Uh, so the mountain, uh, I'll just give you a brief background, mm-hmm. is located on the borders of India, Pakistan, and China. And it is uh, a difficult mountain to approach. It has a fascinating history. I won't get all into it now, but in 1985, a joint Indo-Japanese uh, expedition attempted to climb Sasakangre to reach the top of the West Peak thinking that was the higher summit. Only after reaching it did they realize they still had a long ways to go to reach the true summit. That's got to be, sorry, that's just has to be a terrible feeling (laughs) to think that you summit. Well, right, after like a a four-month expedition, and it was a huge siege-style expedition with tons of equipment and personnel and Sherpas and, you know, math fixing ropes and, you know, as many of the big mountains were climbed back in those days. But what happened was actually to our benefit because feeling the need to say they climbed something, they decided to call what they climbed the western summit. And even though it's not a true summit, it's really more a shoulder of the mountain because it doesn't have enough relief between that and the true summit, the eastern summit, it was, you know, it was a top. And, uh, so they called it, they say they had reached the summit of Sasser Congre to west. And basically the mountain kind of lost interest and faded into oblivion. And no one really thought about it because people sort of felt it had been climbed, but it hadn't. And so here was this amazing peak left unclimbed for another over 20 years until we sort of dug it up through research and trips into the um, region. This is the eastern Karakoram which is a very complex area to visit anyways. So we found it. I had made a previous expedition there to another unclimbed mountain called Yamandaka. We sighted this massif. They look very interesting. We began to do our research and found that, in fact, the mountain had never really been climbed. So that's what began our process and made an attempt in 2009 with Mark Wilford and Jim Lowther of the UK, two really close friends and uh, expert climbers and was really more reconnaissance, and Steve Swenson, excuse me, there are four of us, it was really more a reconnaissance expedition where we went in and we had no idea how we were going to approach this mountain. Uh, we knew we weren't going to attempt it the way the Indo-Japanese did because their climb ended on the top of a mountain that was a kilometer away from the true summit along this long, torturous knife edge, and we didn't want to do that. So we um, approached from a different side and found a great, uh, uh, very steep and long face, but it looked like exactly the type of challenge that we'd be interested in. So that 2009 expedition ended about halfway up that big face. We had gone probably too late in the season. It was uh, Arctic temperatures. We were exhausted from making so many forays to the base of the climb and uh, difficulties, bad weather, uh, all of the above forced us to uh, turnaround, but with the idea, certainly for me, that I was coming back. Uh, I knew it was a 
a, a real plum uh, in the climbing world. And I was going to immediately, uh, after leaving uh, India that year, was, was planning a return. So when we say bad weather, a lot of people have different perceptions of what bad weather is. And I actually don't know what that means. So what kind of bad weather are you facing? We were experiencing uh, stormy periods that had high winds and snow, and they weren't so bad that we were feared for our lives, but they were making it impossible to make forward progress. So let me just start off by saying that our approach to this climb was different than how many people approach climbing mountains, or say different than how Russell, your dad, and I climb Mount Everest. We were climbing strictly alpine style. So start at the bottom, everything required in your pack needed to make the climb and go to the top in one continuous push. Wow. And since uh, uh, 1991 in my uh, climb on Everest, which we did in what we'd call expedition style, fixing ropes and camps, alpine style has been the only way I've climbed and really the only way that interests me in climbing. So we were, in, we're absolutely um, uh, intent on climbing Sasser Congre, making first ascent of this mountain, not only uh, was it second high sun climb mountain, but we wanted to do it in the best of style. To us, that meant alpine style. So all that said, encountering a storm of any kind that's going to slow down your upward progress is probably going to mean retreat because you can only carry so much food and fuel to sustain yourselves through a long uh, stormy period. So mm-hmm. in this case, we got a couple of bad days of weather. It was extremely cold, and uh, the, the face was plastered in fine snow and ice, and we just felt there was no way um, we could carry on. And as I said, we were late. That, that first attempt, 2009, we started a month later than our, te- than our successful attempt in uh, 2011, and brought us well into September. And the high peaks in the Himalaya in September can be mighty cold and uncomfortable. We were hoping, you know, to get better weather, and we didn't. Uh, so that all those factors sort of played into it. And remember, you know, when you go to a mountain for the first time, never been there, we had no photographs of this face, had never seen it before reaching it. And the glaciers below this face had never been explored. No humans had ever set foot on them. So there was a, there was a big exploratory reconnaissance component to that first attempt in 2009. And it's not uncommon for those you know, first reconnaissance expeditions not to be successful on a major climb. And that was our case as well. So just for our listeners, something that a lot of people don't really realize is the Himalayas are so high up already. To kind of give you a reference of that, I think the base camp, the starting camp, uh, if you're climbing Mount Everest is 17,000 feet, somewhere around there. Is that right, Mark? Yes. And then the summit is 29,000. So where were you guys actually starting? What elevation? And then the final elevation, I think, is around 25,000 feet tall. So where were you guys starting and what did you have to do all alpine style? Okay, great question. So our base camp was in a meadow at the top of a long glacier uh, system, and that was at 5,000 meters, which converts to about uh, 16,500 feet. So that was our base camp. Now, to begin the climb, the mountain we couldn't even see from our base camp. So we had to go over a 6,000-meter pass, which is almost 20,000 feet, and then descend down the opposite side on the 
Kanchung, Kunchung Glacier, excuse me, and uh, reached the base of Sasser Kangri, which was about 5,700 meters. So that would have been um, about 18,500. 18, and as you pointed out, the summit was about 25,000. So uh, uh, 7,518 meters. I remember everything in meters for some reason because all the maps are on meters, I guess. <laughs> How long were you guys climbing those difficult 7,000 feet? Well, a total of uh, three bivouacs up and one bivouac down, so, uh, you know, camps. So we were uh, four days with the descent, so five days round trip. Mm -hmm. And you were carrying everything with you. That was the Alpine style, right? Correct, yeah. We, so that was five days from our, we'll call it our advanced base camp on the Kunchung Glacier. From there to the top, call it rough speaking about uh, 6,000 uh, feet, 18.7 to 25. So, uh, yeah, a little over 6,000 feet of actual, you know, technical climbing. And to uh, give to give the listeners a little bit more of a grasp of what kind of mountain this is, I was looking at some pictures uh, from your expedition, and I saw a Camp Two. It's captioned Camp Two dot 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 just barely, and it's a <laughs> it's a great picture. There's uh, as you see this, Russell. There's an area of it just looks like ice, kind of a little like maybe dirty ice, and probably about six feet by six feet and there's this little tent on this square piece of ice and it says that you had to use this area you had to make it because there were literally no places on the mountain big enough to place a tent like this and the tent's probably three feet wide by six feet long exactly one of the interesting things about this face is that it was almost void of any ledges or platforms large enough to forget putting a, a, a tent on just sit down and rest on. So one of the reasons is it's a south face. So it gets an interesting melting process there where it gets a lot of sun during the day, but then freezes up, of course, most of the, you know, all night and most in a, a good part of the day. So ice has filled in everything. So the, the whole face was really just a sheer wall of ice with rock outcroppings along the side. And the rock was good because we could use that to climb and protect. But unfortunately, every place that looked like from below that it should be a good ledge turned out to just be filled over with solid water ice, like you'd find at an ice skating rink. So we had to chop them out. And this was one of the things that we discovered on our reconnaissance expedition in 2009 and because of that, we came back on our second attempt knowing that finding good camps or bivouacs was going to be hard. And, of course, resting is a critical part to maintaining strength uh, on a long climb like this. So it's critical that we found good places where the three of us could rest, rehydrate, eat, and, you know, replenish ourselves. So we brought along a secret weapon. We called it the ice hammock. And it was a fascinating device that we tested and developed here in the White Mountains. And basically, it's just a super lightweight hammock that could be pinned to the ice wall on either side of an area that we were going to chop the ice out. And as we chopped out the ice to create a platform, we could fill the hammock up with the ice and extend that platform by a couple of extra feet and thus make the chore of chopping a ledge, which might have taken two, three, four hours to half of that. This uh, little invention of ours has now become a very useful device to many Alpine-style climbers around the world. So uh, we were really pleased about that innovation that we 
developed specifically to climb the uh, Sasser Congre. Yeah, and for any of the listeners that are now thinking they should start a business based off this idea, not that many people <laughs> probably actually need it, but it, yeah, I'm sure they won't be selling too many of them. In fact, most people, ours were made by Wild Things, a manufacturer in North Conway, owned by my dear friend Titun Munier. But most people are just making them themselves or going to their. Many of the people have sponsored manufacturers like you know Patagonia or whoever that'll make them for them and. Uh, is it's a simple device. It's literally nothing more than a long sheet of very lightweight fabric with loops on the end. So it can be pinned to the wall with ice screws or pitons, and then it can be filled up. It has to be robust enough to support the ice. But it's a funny thing. Once you start to fill it with ice, the ice, because it's held together, compresses and then will freeze and becomes a solid ledge. And uh, the other thing it helped with is sometimes we chop these ledges for for a tent or a sleeping platform, and we'd hit rock only a foot or two below it. So even, and then we were, you know, finished. You couldn't chop anymore. And, uh, you know, you'd be limited to a two-foot ledge, which is certainly not enough to put even in the smallest of tents. So that was a fascinating whole process for me and for Freddie and Steve because, you know, we thought a lot about it and it forced us to think about a solution. And we came up with one and it worked. So, Mark, eventually you make it to the top of this thing. Was this the most rewarding point in your climbing career? Uh, that's a tough one, but it was certainly, up. I'd say, top 10 for sure. I mean, I really worked hard for this one. So did Steve. I mean, Steve, that's a whole story there, but Steve wasn't feeling well and uh, he became ill, but he has incredible drive and he made it to the top. And to get there, and neither of us are spring chickens. I was 53 at the time. He was 57. And to reach this summit at this point in our careers, yeah, it was pretty sweet. All three of us uh, shared the responsibility of leading. Steve wasn't feeling that well in the last days. Freddie and I did most of the hard work of leading and uh, so forth. But I remember as we got near the top, Freddie had been leading, and uh, he stopped a few hundred feet from the top and um let me finish it up. He knew how much it meant to me and be the first one to stand on the very top. And uh, I let out a giant primal scream and it just came out. I just couldn't help myself. It, and it was an amazing day. There wasn't a cloud in the sky and a, hardly a breath of wind. I mean, I took off my jacket and uh, uh, I, it was just uh, an incredible moment of elation, really, for all of us. And we, we were quickly all uh, joined on the top and we spent like it seemed like hours up there probably was only about an hour but a long time just taking pictures and looking and we could see way into the you know the the major Karakoram and ranges we didn't even know what they were we could see k2 way in the distance and the gasher brooms and uh, way south into other indian ranges and it was amazing just an amazing day and all alone up there and to be the first on top of this Amazing mountain that worked so hard for, and Steve to have made it. And we, I had my doubts that he was going to make it. In fact, he did too. We, he was thinking of staying behind in the last camp uh, and not going for the summit because he was uh, feeling so bad. In fact, he, uh, he really just wanted at one point get to that high camp to make sure that Freddie and I could go to the top. But uh, he pushed and made it, and there were three of us were there and. Yeah, it was quite a moment. But uh, to say it was the best, uh, you know, <laughs> when you're there on top, they're all the best. So uh, I had many bests I, for me. And 
you know, it's just great being there with people that you really care about, your closest friends, to share an experience like that, something that is, you know, 99% hard work and blood, sweat, and tears for that 1% of just incredible emotion and elation. And, and you don't always reach the top in conditions like that. That was the other thing. We were so lucky to be there, to be up there in a windless, crystal clear, warm day at 20, nearly 25,000 feet and to spend that kind of time. I mean, I've, I wish I, I've had five times the number of summits, I'm sure, or 10 times that I've crawled on you know, all fours to the top in a blizzard and could know I was there only because there was nowhere further to go up and turned around and gone down. And that's been the summit. So we were lucky and it was beautiful. That's so cool. That gives me goosebumps just hearing you talking about it. Really neat. For our listeners, you heard Mark allude to Steve getting sick. Just really quickly, I'll describe at least what I read happened. He ended up getting some sort of lung infection and Apparently there was a lot of mucus involved, so much mucus that he was suffocating. And Mark, I read a quote from you when Steve finally got a helicopter to get out of there. Your line was, your limo is here, which is just about the funniest line that you could say to your friend who's quite close to death, but I guess relative to the circumstances, it was kind of a limo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was how I woke him up. You know, that was a scary, scary time for us uh, because there's probably nothing more frightening than not being able to breathe for any of us, right? So, and that's what was happening to Steve. So he completed the climb, and he, although he struggled, and he was definitely not 100% because he had this sinus infection, actually, that was really bogging him down. He was building up a ton of mucus, and it was getting into his lungs, and he wasn't sleeping couldn't lay down on the last couple of nights and he was getting weaker and weaker and he was having a hard time getting enough air but he's such a a mutant cardio machine that he was able to you know push through it this is a guy who in high school was a standout distance runner and has always been in a class of his own at high altitude just you know power endurance he's he's an amazing high altitude athlete but so even you know most people would have been done with this but he he pushed through and he had been resting way down in the valley while we were acclimatizing on other peaks to try and get rid of this infection. But at any rate, so we reach the summit. Steve becomes increasingly weak. We have a really bad last night on the mountain. Make the 40-some-odd rappels down the mountain face, get down well into the dark past midnight, ski along, do this ter- terrifying ski across the a glacier in a bit of white out uh, at night, exhausted, totally covered in ice, you know, uh, huge gaping crevasses everywhere, just trying to stop before sliding into them. Get back, couldn't find our tents. Our, we had Sherpas, our staff down on the advanced base camp waiting for us. We couldn't find it. We skied right past it and they didn't have lights on. They didn't know where we were. Finally made voice recognition, got back there. Freddie and I dropped off like, you know, the sleep of the dead from, you know, four days of just unbelievable, you know, 24-hour push pretty much. But Steve didn't. He couldn't sleep. Once he got down to base camp, I think, you know, the adrenaline sort of stopped and the the mucus that he was hucking up was getting bigger and, and heavier. And he was literally having periods where he was choking on his own phlegm and he couldn't get in the air. He woke me up in an utter panic and he, you know, 
the look on his face told the whole story. I mean, this was a guy who was had the look of, you know, fear of death on his face. So that's when we began, you know, uh, emergency uh, steps, uh, got him stood up, uh, doing massaging him, you know, making, we had a sat phone, making phone calls back to his personal physician who was aware of Steve. Steve has a kind of a, an unusual sinus condition, not to this extent ever. I mean, he had an actual, it was exacerbated by the infection. So his, his, his uh, physician, Brownie, was emailing us back and forth. I remember at one point I said to Brownie, I said, so Brownie, what happens, what do I do when he stops breathing? And it was like a long pause. Brown goes, don't let that happen. <laughs> but it got to the point where Freddie and I, we had, we had cut, you know, we weren't letting Steve see this, but we had cut tubes off our, plastic tubes off our harness and sterilized a Swiss Army knife. And I was ready. I was the one who was going to do it because I had the most wilderness medical experience. And, of course, the reality is that probably wouldn't have helped because the blockage was below that point where he could get, I would have had to go right through his chest, through his sternum. Oh and we definitely was. I definitely was not prepared to do that. But so Brownie's advice was, well, don't let him stop breathing. But um, that's how serious it was. He was having periods where he would just go blue, red, and he couldn't get in the air. And then he'd, he'd, he'd get it out. And we were walking him around the camp and feeding him hot liquids. Hot liquids actually, uh, eventually the hydration helped loosen it up. And so he could just get it out. And that was, was happening. He was also dehydrated. So it was sticky, you know, that's what it was jamming these like literally like small, not golf ball size, but nearly that size hunks of phlegm that were just getting lodged in his trachea. So really, really scary uh, situation. I mean, you can go a long time. You can be sick and go for a while, you know, but you can't if you can't breathe. Yeah, it's an incredible story. And it actually got one of the biggest awards in climbing in 2012. Uh, some people call it the Academy Award for the climbing world called the P.O. Ledor. And they got the award. Freddie actually made a documentary of the whole feature. So we'll put that on our website for our listeners. We love your passion, Mark. It seems like you really think things through. If any of our listeners are looking to do uh, creative, maybe it's a first ascent, maybe it's just something that a lot of people don't do, what would be the first step for them to find out, you know, where an interesting place to go hiking or climbing is? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked that because I talk to a lot of people that share my passion and being outdoors and going to uh, wild places, and they often ask me, how do you, uh, most people tend to go where other people have gone before, because it's sort of, I think, something that um, falls in line with our fast-paced society and our limited vacation, and people want to know everything about where they're going, and, you know, that if you've got two weeks to go somewhere, you know, you want to plan every last detail. Well, part of being an explorer and going to places where few people or no one's ever visited them is you've got to be able to take some risk and recognize that you're going to have to figure things out as you go. So I would try to encourage people to be more exploratory and take more risks in their travel and in the places they go as whether they're climbers or just adventures or just like to travel and not follow the the well-worn tourist path all the time. And it always surprises me how many climbers go to the you know, the big known 8,000 meter peaks where they're going to be there with 
you know, a small city of other climbers. And they're going to miss out, I think, so much on the experiences that I think are really unique and special in being in the mountains and wild places. And that is to be alone and experience those wild places. And there's so much opportunity to do that. You just have to go there and try it and say, hey, uh, you know, I want to go, say, climb in uh, the Grand Canyon, you know, uh, and but I'm not going to just go where everybody else goes. I'm going to pick some peak that uh, is a little off the beaten path, right? Uh, you know, try hiking uh, in an area that isn't as popular as another area. Maybe it doesn't have the big name uh, status or, the, or climbing status, but you'd be surprised how fulfilling and how rewarding it is to go and feel like, you know, you're really finding something for the first time and you don't know really what you're going to find the next day or the next week. So, Yeah, very neat. I forget where I heard this, but something along the lines of it's not an adventure unless something unexpected happens. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Russell and I really enjoyed talking to you. This is quite an expedition. For our listeners, you can find highlights of this episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Meister fans, where did you listen to this episode? Maybe you were on a run. Maybe you're driving to work. Well, we want to see. So send us a picture of where you listen to Mountain Meister, and you could be entered to win a free tub of Acclimate. And if you want to meet the creator of Acclimate, listen to the episode before this one, episode number 53 with Roanne Hauk. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mark Ritchie. Join us tomorrow on the show when we have Lindsay Mann. Lindsay also does some mountaineering for Rainier Mountaineering Incorporated. She's a guide there, and you won't believe how many times she's summited Mount Rainier. She'll also give us some training tips that we can use in our own mountaineering adventures, so join us then. 